It's written, this book of 1 Thessalonians is written by Paul, the apostle. When Paul was born, he was not born as Paul. He comes from a very Jewish background. He, his parents named him Saul when he was growing up, which is uh, to com- commemorate the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul. And uh, that name just means asked for. But after he is converted, a little later on, he goes by the Roman version of that name as he begins to minister to Gentiles, and the Roman version of that name is Paul, and uh, Paul just means little, just means little. Now, when Paul was growing up, his parents were very, very strict religiously. He grows up as a Pharisee. He studies, uh, literally has what you and I would call a doctorate in theology. He's very, very well uh, learned in, in his faith. And uh, so we'll see that as it comes out in, in, um, in this letter. This letter is going to be written, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, to confirm some of the things that he taught them while he was with them. And also we're going to find that in this book it's going to be very heavy on eschatology. Now eschatology is just the study of end times. In this book there is the study of what is called the harpazo, which, uh, in the, which is the Greek word, and in the Latin version of that word is just the word rapturo, and uh, we in English just say rapture. We'll, we'll study that as we get to it. What's also going to be so amazing about this, this letter to this church is that Paul is only there in this area of Thessalonica for three weeks, and he begins a church. And so we're going we're gonna to find out that, you know, what do you talk about if you only have three weeks to start a church, and we'll, we'll see what what Paul focuses in on. Now, to understand this book, I've asked you to turn back to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And um, if I were to show you a map of the world way back when, it would look something like this. You know, when you think of the Roman Empire, you see Jerusalem is over there in the yellow, just kind of over there to your right, kind of down at the bottom. Does everybody see that? Yes? Say it like you mean it. Okay, now that's very Jewish, obviously. And then if you go up the coastline, you, you see this place called Antioch. Everybody see that? Antioch. Now, Antioch is the big Gentile city, and, uh, and it's out of, out of Israel, but it's, it's up to the north. And um, so you, I want you to just notice a couple of things on this map. Because we're going to talk about where, where things line up. You'll see that there's Jerusalem over here. To the north of that is Antioch. And you go over there to the red and you see um, Rome and all of that. And uh, up at the top, not between you know, Rome and Jerusalem, uh, you, you see Athens. And then above Athens, you see Thessalonica, just before it gets white up there at the, the very top. You see that? And we'll be coming back to that as we go. Now, in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, in verse 35, I'm going to hop, skip, and jump as we travel through just to give some background as to what's going on. It says, But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Go back to the map. We'll just leave the map up there for, for the most part. Okay, so you see Paul, it says, our story picks up, and Paul is going to be there in this town of Antioch, and uh, so we see that. Now, now at a certain point, Paul decides to go on what is called the second missionary journey, and this missionary journey is going to take several years. So in chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, you notice it says, it says in there, um, verse 40, it says, but Paul chose Silas. He's going to be important in our study. And left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
So Paul is going to begin the second missionary journey, and he takes with him this man, Silas. And now Silas is also a Roman citizen. We'll talk about that. Interesting thing, I, I think I, I forgot to tell you this, but Paul is a Roman citizen, which is very unusual for a Jewish person, but uh, he, he actually is a Roman citizen, and that'll be important for our study. So in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, it just begins in verse 1. It says, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy. Now, you might want to underline Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. So so here's this man, Timothy. He's um, half Jewish, and he's half Greek. Now, uh, what made you Jewish then and today is not so much your dad, it's more your mom. And so he's considered Jewish. But um, one of the things that you find out as you read the story is that Timothy is uncircumcised. Now, if you don't know what that means, look it up. But, um, but he, he's not. And I blush when I talk about it. So Paul wants to take him on this missionary journey. And if you read the next few verses, you don't need to right now tell you the story. Uh, Paul realizes that because he's half Gentile and he's half Jewish, he knows the Bible, but he's never had that done. And so Paul decides to do that. It's probably a very interesting conversation. Timothy, this will be great. You'll love this. So, um, so, so he does this. Now, he knows because he's going to go on a mission journey that he's going to be going into synagogues. Paul always goes to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles, uh, you know, after that. But he always goes to the synagogue first. And in the synagogue, if you weren't Jewish or you didn't have that done, you couldn't go into the synagogue. Now, I always wonder, how do they know? (laughs) You know, know? so you want to come in? Well, you lift that toga. Then we'll see what's what. (laughs) Oiving. Come over here. What do you make it at? You know? <laughs> so anyways, we'll go on. So, so Paul says, let's just do that. Okay. Verse 6 of chapter 16. So now Timothy is traveling with them. So you have Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And in verse 6 it says, so they passed through. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, if you see Jerusalem... And you go up and you see Antioch, and then you go up and then a little bit to the left, you see that area of, um, actually, yeah, a little to the left, you see that area called Galatians. Does everybody see that? So, so they, go through, they go through that area, and then verse 8, it says, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. What I want to do now is I want to shrink that map a little bit. Let's go to the second map. And so they're up in the Galatian area, then they come down to Troas. Now, Troas is going to be on the far side of the screen, and you see it, and it says Troas right there. Everybody see that? So that's a seaport town at that point. So they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit was not uh, passing through by Mysia. They came down to Troas. Then verses 9 and 10, it's, while they're there, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. Now everybody look up at the top of the map. You'll see that where it says Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And now when he had seen the vision, verse 10, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, interesting, uh, Paul wanted to go towards Asia. You see Asia over there on the far side, which would be in that direction. Not Asia as we know it today, but Asia as they knew it back then. 
But God is going to be leading Paul over in this direction, which is going to be bringing the gospel to the area of Europe that, that uh, we know today. So it's going to go in that, that direction. Paul wanted to go in another direction, and God says, no, we're going to go over here in this direction. So they're, they're very Gentile, and they're very pagan. They worship a lot of different gods, and we'll see that as we, we travel through. So verse uh, 11 there in your Bible, it says, so putting out to sea from Troas, so they get in a boat there at Troas, and they ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and then verse 12, and it says, and from there to Philippi. Now I want you to underline Philippi, and you'll see where Philippi is at the top of the map. Does everybody see that? That's going to be important for our study today, because if you miss what happens in Philippi, then we have to do a lot of background when we get into Thessalonica, because something happens here that sets the stage. And so from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and you see that, a Roman colony, and uh, we were staying in the city for some days. Then verse 13, it says, now on the Sabbath day, we went out to the gate Uh, out of the gate to a riverside where they were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled. Now that doesn't typically mean a whole lot to you and I, but there's no synagogue there. In in, um, that time and, and today, in order for there to be an established Jewish synagogue, there needs to be 10 Jewish men to, to establish that. And so if there weren't 10 Jewish men to establish the synagogue, then all the Jewish people knew throughout the world, if you wanted to fellowship on the Sabbath with other Jewish people, if there's no synagogue, then what you needed to do is you needed to go to the closest place where there's water. In in this case, there's there's going to be a river there. And uh, you would go there and you would see that would be the place that was known to all Jewish people. That's where you would go and you would fellowship with other Jewish people and you'd get together. But it, it tells us that there's not enough Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. That's going to be important for our study. So verses 14 and 15, it says, you know, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And while she and her household were baptized, she urged us saying, when it says us here, by the way, you know, earlier it took uh, Paul Silas and Timothy, but now the writer is us, and the writer is Luke, who you'll hear about. Uh, Many people think that Luke is a a disciple of one of the 12 disciples. Luke's not one of the 12 disciples. Luke is over in this area, and he's a physician. He meets up with Paul the Apostle more than a decade after, uh, almost 20 years after Jesus is resurrected. He's not one of the original disciples, but he's the one writing us, and when it says us, that means that he's now part of this of this traveling entourage so she urged us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the lord come into my house and stay and she prevailed upon us so at this point as paul is in this town of philippi there in the top uh, a few people are starting to believe there's not this uh wide revival or anything like that but a few people are starting to believe um, verse 16 through 18, this is where the plot begins to, ha- uh, to thicken. It says, and it happened that while we were going to the place of prayer, remember that's out by the water, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, uh, Luke concludes himself now in that, she kept she kept crying out, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. 
and turned and said to the spirit, not to the girl, but to the spirit that was inhabiting the girl, which is a demon, uh, to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. How very cool. Now, um, you've you got to wonder, Paul, why are you upset that this lady's telling everybody that this is Paul, he's telling everybody, that, you know, you, you're preaching the way of salvation. What she was saying was absolutely true. There was no problem in what she was saying. The problem was who was, who was validating Paul's ministry. You, you don't want a demon validating your ministry. Uh, if you were to show up here on one Sunday morning and you, you pull in and there's a group of Hare Krishnas. How many of you are old enough to remember going to the turnpike stops and there's the Hare Krishnas there? Okay, a couple of us. If, uh, if, you, if you aren't old enough to remember that, you, you've certainly missed a great part of American history. But, but imagine, for those of you who, who've ever seen this, you show up on Sunday morning, and there's a, a group of Hare Krishnas in their robes and ponytails and tambourines, and they're all dancing and chanting, circling, you know, and going, Pastor Dan speaks truth, Pastor Dan speaks truth. Now, what they're saying, I hope would be true, that, that I am doing that, but that's not really the validation of my ministry that I'm looking for. That makes sense? As a matter of fact, it would creep most of you out. I hope. <laughs> I, I hope. Maybe not. But, but anyways, I, I hope it would. Well, verse 19. So what happens? Well... When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the marketplace, before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, the chief magistrates, these are the local leaders there, um, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. Now, we're going to find out that all the accusations that they are making are all based on misinformation. It's, Paul was... Um, racially Jewish, but he's no longer following the Jewish religion. He's a Christian. He's been converted. converted. And so uh, we'll see that they're going to make a couple of things. And so, and they're proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. So they don't, they don't say which ones. They just, you know, make this accusation. And so it kind of stirs up the crowd. Somebody starts and stirs up the crowd, and the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates, now you want to underline this, tore their robes off of them, tore their robes off them, that's off of Paul and Silas, and proceeded to order them to be, and I want you to underline, beaten with rods, beaten with rods. So the first thing that they do is they tear their outer clothing off of them, and they begin, they order them to be beaten with rods. Now I want you to notice that the word rods is plural. Is it plural? This is not one rod, this is, this is more than one that this will take place. The, the best description, if you've ever heard of the process of caning, um, how many of you ever heard of that, caning, you know? And uh, if you've ever seen it, you know that you never want to go to Singapore on vacation because they do that there and it's, it's unbelievable. This is a process where they beat you to the place where you are nearly dead. That's, that's the idea. The Romans uh, had, had figured out how far you could beat a person, tearing their, their, their skin, their muscle, um, uh, and literally opening them up by hitting them with rods, they bring you to the place of death and figure out where that was, and they back it off just a little bit. So you're, for the most part, you're mostly dead, we might say. But uh, the idea was from the Romans that we're going to do this to you because we never want to cover this again. And this would leave, when this happened, this would leave permanent disfigurement because it's tearing literally the muscles, it's opening the back, it's opening uh, the muscles, and there's a lot of bleeding, a lot of scabbing, and an incredible disfigurement. 
Which is why? Which is why when Paul writes, and I put it there in your outline to the Galatians, he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul was disfigured, especially over his back and legs, in the same way Jesus was because he had taken very similar beating. This was with rods in this case. Now, verse 23, it goes on and it says, Now, when they, so it wasn't just one person, one underlined they, had struck them, so it's Paul and Silas, with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Now, um, so you notice that they struck, there's more than one, many blows, and again, Paul would be nearly dead at this point. Verse 24, it says, now having received such a command, uh, when it says receive such a command, you can read into that, that, that it's, the jailer gets this command, he goes, why, why throw them in jail? I mean, they're, they're nearly dead at this point. What do you care? You know, but okay, you're giving us this kind of command, so we'll do it. Verse 24, when he had received such a command, he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their, their feet in stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. I'm going to come back to that. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains, and you might want to underline, everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The prisoners that night are astonished as they listen to Paul and Silas around midnight singing praises to God. What's astonishing is that Paul and and Silas, not that they're praising God as they're going through a difficult time. I mean, that's part of it. What's really hitting them is how can you, after taking that kind of beating where, where you are literally at the brink of death, how do you have the physical capacity to, to say anything? I mean, most people who go through this can only lay there and moan. Have you ever seen somebody in a, in a, in a very bad accident where there's a lot of breaking and all that? You know, they're, they're, you, you just can't sit up and talk. And so here, uh, they're, they're, they're astonished that these men are able even to just sit up, or that they're able to speak. And not only that, but they're singing. And it's having an effect on the rest of the prisoners as you know, they're singing praises. It's at that time that God sends a great earthquake. And what's interesting is that nobody runs. All, all, their, all their chains fall off and nobody runs. Apparently, whatever was happening in that prison is having a great effect on all of the prisoners. And we're going to find out it had a great effect on the, on the jailer at this point too. But in verse 27, he says, when the jailer awoke and, and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The Romans had a custom where if you were in charge of a prisoner and uh, you lose the prisoner, it's not a problem, we just kill you. So, so you didn't lose prisoners. Make sense? By the way, there's a, there's a whole teaching here. I wish I had time to go into it, but I don't. But you notice throughout the Bible that God responds to his people praising him. And here, in a very difficult time, Paul and Silas are praising God, and God responds with a great earthquake. We've studied that before. We can't go into it today. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice. He said, do not harm yourself. We're all here. I, Silas, and all the prisoners, we're all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So they, they all need to believe and they'll all be saved. Well, uh, verse 32, it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to them, together with all who were in his house. Apparently, he, he calls the whole family together. Household in those days didn't just mean your wife and your kids. Your household would be all the other jailers who would be there, who would be serving under you, and, and the people who would be attached to you. If you had employees, that would be considered your household. Verse 33, it says, And he took them out that very hour of the night. And I want you to underline, washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized and all his house, household. The point I want to make there is when it says they washed their wounds. You don't wash bruises. That make sense? Th- these are open wounds, scabbing open. You can see the muscle on, on Paul's back. So Paul here is, is ministering literally, I think, under, under the power of the Holy Spirit at this point. So they're, they're, so they're washing. These are more than bruises. Verse 35, now the day came... And the chief magistrates, local leadership, sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, hey, the chief magistrates have sent over to release you. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without a trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison uh, and have thrown us into prison and now they are sending us away secretly? No, 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 indeed. Is that how much, pretty much how it says it in your Bible? I think Paul goes, no, we have a little issue here. But let them come themselves and bring us out. We want to work out something with them. So um, verse 38, it says, now the policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates and they were afraid. Now you want to underline, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, that they were Romans. Verse 39, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Now, um, what's interesting about this is that prior to the beating, Paul didn't make a big deal about the fact that he's a Roman. Either, Either they weren't listening, or the Holy Spirit told Paul, don't say anything right now. But right now, when they're ready to release him, Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, and for a Roman citizen, you were guaranteed due process, which meant that you're, the, although the Romans could beat just about whoever they wanted, they can't beat you as a Roman, and you can't be thrown into prison without due process. And, and what this means is that if Paul makes an issue of this, what happened to Paul is going to happen to them, and they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their job, they're going to lose their position, and whatever they did to Paul is going to happen to them. So they're terrified at this point. That makes sense? Now, it says, they came out, verse 39, and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Um, you will remember that there was no synagogue there in the this, in this city, but a church will be established in Philippi this town where Paul takes his beating. So the question is, by who is this church established? I mean, who, who are the people who will be filling up, uh, up, the, up the church? You remember that Paul was in prison, and he's singing praises to God. An earthquake comes, chains fall off of everybody, and the other prisoners have the ability to run, but they don't. But they don't. 
for whatever reason, they stay there. Something's happening where, where um, they, they, they stay. They don't run. It is held that what takes place is this, that when the magistrates come to Paul, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. I make an issue of this. You get what I just got, and you lose your job, and, and probably worse than what I just got. But I'm willing to make a deal. You drop the charges on all my new friends here in the jail. I don't make an issue. You don't drop the charges. Big issue. See, I'm, I'm carrying the evidence. I'm carrying the evidence. Everybody's going to believe me, and I will make it an issue. It is believed that all of the charges are now dropped by all, on all the other prisoners in the jail who are now believers. Notice the next verse. By the way, does that make sense? Verse 40, it says, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, underline that, they encouraged them and departed. They encouraged them and departed. So here's the question. Who are the brethren? They went out to the river and there was just a few women, but now there are the brethren. It's commonly held that this church was started by a bunch of ex-cons who got saved last night. Make sense? It's the power of God. Power of God. Okay. Now, that's important for you. So, um, verse 40, they encouraged them, and then they departed. And then chapter 17, it says, so they depart. And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So everybody sees Philippi up there on the map, and now they come down to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue in the Jews, of the Jews. Now, here's what you want to write down. The distance between that is, is about two days. So Paul will arrive in Thessalonica about two days after his beating in Philippi, after two days. And when he shows up, he's scabbing, he's bleeding, he has open wounds, the rest of his body is black and blue. Uh, how he's made this trip, we don't know, but, but he's just beat to a pulp. Now, when Paul, and this is the difference between Paul and I, just so we understand each other. When Paul takes a beating in a town, he says, it's time to go somewhere else. Pastor Dan takes a beating, he says, it's time to take a vacation. Paul goes two days journey to the next town. One of the things that we might do if it happened to us, we might say, we need to do some market research and maybe adjust our approach. Paul never does that. Paul never does that. And he keeps going, goes to the next place. So um, he comes to Thessalonica. Now, I want you to write down three things about Thessalonica very quickly. Thessalonica was prominent, it was prosperous, and it was pagan. Prominent, prosperous, and pagan. It was considered a free city in the uh, Roman Empire, which meant that they didn't have a Roman garrison. There were, there were no soldiers to watch over things. They were a free city, so they were able to make their own money. It was a very prosperous seaport that they were on. There was a lot of commerce that came through there, through that town. There, they even had a resort that had hot springs, so people from other places would come and they would vacation there. It's completely pagan, and there's a number of pagan temples in this town. Now, verses 2 and 3, you notice it says, and according to Paul's custom, now remember, I might change my, my uh, approach, but Paul doesn't. He, he went to them and for, and I want you to underline three Sabbaths, three Sabbaths, three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And I want you to underline from the Scriptures. 
Verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, underline that, and rise again, underline that, from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. He's the Christ. So he's in Thessalonica, and it says he's reasoning with them for three Sabbaths, three Sabbaths. So here's what you want to write down. Paul is only going to be in this town. It's going to be less than four weeks, less than four weeks. And, and that's being generous. Uh, he's there for three Sabbaths, so maybe he got there before the Sabbath, a few days after, we don't know, but, but no longer than four weeks. He will establish a church in this town only being there for three weeks. And then I also want you to notice in verse 2, it says, and he, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, from the Scriptures. Now, this is the part, many times we read it and we forget this, but you want to write this down. Paul's message about Christ is completely from what you and I would call the Old Testament. The Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament. They, they don't have the New Testament scriptures. Many believe that Thessal, the, uh, the Thessalonian letters are, are some of the earliest letters written, and they haven't been written yet. So Paul has to convince them completely from the Old Testament. So far, so good? So Paul's going to highlight some verses, like back in Isaiah, put it there in your outline, where it just says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are all healed. We are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So they would look on and say, well, who's that talking about? And Paul would explain, that's talking about Jesus. He would take our sins, and uh, we, we know, and, and it goes on. And, but then it says that in, in verse 3 that he had to suffer and rise again. And Paul would say, well, you know, there in Psalm 16 it says, but you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So he's going to die, but um, he's not going to decay there. Something's going to happen. He's going to come back to life. So he had to rise again. And Paul goes to the Old Testament showing them this is Jesus that they were talking about. Verse 4 of 17, he says, and some of them were persuaded, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with they, and I want you to underline however your Bible says that large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So some were persuaded. And, and one of the things that you'll find is that Paul's not really called to reach the Jewish people. He's very ineffective at that. But he's very effective because he's called to reach Gentiles. He's very effective at that. Peter, on the other hand, was called to reach the Jewish people, which he's very effective at, but, but not called to reach the Gentiles, so he's not all that effective at that. Sometimes God gives you a specific calling to a certain group of people, a certain demographic. Um, so we notice who Paul did reach. He, he reached the, the Gentiles, and it says in verse 4, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading, of the, the leading women. Now what's interesting in that is that Paul goes there, reasons from the Old Testament, the scriptures that they have, and he wins a large number of people who for the most part, you've got to get this, who have no understanding of, of, of the Bible. They're God-fearing, but they're Greeks. They don't, they don't have a copy of the Old Testament. They, they, they haven't learned that. But Paul believes in the power of God's word to do its work. And so it's God and his word doing his work, which we'll, we'll see when we get to it. But Paul's going to remind the Thessalonians, I put this verse on your outline, 
Um, for this reason, we always constantly, or we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and they had no Bible background, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And you might want to underline that last line. We'll underline it when we come to it, which also performs its work in you who believe. So it's really God's word and his spirit coming together to do the work. It's not the method. So uh, it just uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, verse 5, it says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring, him, to, to bring them out to the people. At this point, Paul's greatest persecution is not going to come from non-believers. It's going to come from people who profess to have a relationship with God. Verses 6 through 9. He says, now, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, who's going to be the prominent person in this church, before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the whole world. And it goes on and on. And Paul has, or Jason has to post bond. And once again, um, Paul leaves the city. Paul leaves the city. And we come to verse 10. And it says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And I want you to notice he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica down to Berea. Does everybody see that? And when he arrived there, he goes to the synagogue of the Jews. And once again, the process begins all over. Well, as we skip down, we find that from there, he goes to Athens, which is at the very bottom. And then I want you to go all the way over to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1 as I skip over, uh, just to get us to the place where, where we need to be. He leaves Athens, which is a story in and of itself, and after these things, he left Athens and came to Corinth. Now, we see Corinth down there. And, and um, verse 4, it says, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Paul had left Silas and Timothy there in that area to continue the work, but they needed to get Paul out of town. So Paul comes to Corinth. Silas and Timothy come later. They give Paul an update. This is what's going on in all of the churches. And so when they do this, now at this point, I want you to turn all the way over to 1 Thessalonians. So you're either asleep or excited at this point, but either way, it's, it's all good. So Silas and Timothy come down to Corinth. They make their way after being left in the area of Macedonia, and they give Paul an update. And there in the update, Paul probably ponders this for about three days, two days, we don't know, but fairly immediately, Paul responds back to what he's heard in this town of Thessalonica with this letter that we're going to be studying, that we're going to be studying. And uh, many believe that this is Paul's first letter, but I want you to write this down. When Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians to this church, the church is less than or no more than six months old at this point. It's a very, very new church, very new church. Paul is going to write them to re, and I want you to write this down, remind them of what he taught them. Uh, he was only there for three weeks. So what do you teach a church if you're only there for three weeks? Well, notice there on your outline, in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say in, in chapter 2, 
there in your outline, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? What things? Well, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Does everybody see that? A few verses before that, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, there in your outline, with your pen in hand, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, underline that, and our being gathered, underline that, to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed uh, to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul talks about two events, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. We're going to talk about that when we get there. But this book has a very strong end times uh, flavor to it. I want you to underline a couple of verses in 1 Thessalonians. First of all, at the very end of the first chapter, verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We'll talk about that wrath and when it's coming and what he's talking about. But we're waiting for for his Son to come from heaven. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, He says, for verse 19, for who is our hope of joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his, and what's that word? Coming, coming. In my Bible, it says coming. So once again, then in chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish, verse 13, your hearts, without blame, in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And then I want you to underline with all his saints. We're going to discover there's two events. There's one event where Jesus comes for the saints. There's another event where Jesus comes with the saints. That'll be important as we travel through. And then notice chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the peace of God... Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We won't even go into 2 Thessalonians, but you get the sense that there's a very strong end times feel to this book. Make sense? So I want you to write this down. The church, the theme of this book is the church in the last days. We're also going to find very quickly that this church, that this letter is written to address problems. We won't be able to talk about it today, but uh, we'll pick it up next week. But it says, for you, brethren, there in your outline, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus who are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from, from the Jews. So Paul writes back to this church, Thessalonica, It was established in three weeks. They're six months old. And they're now suffering the same persecution as the churches in Israel. Uh, People are losing their homes. People are being beaten. um, All all types of terrible things are happening. And so Paul's going to deal with that. How do you deal with difficult times that come in your life, especially related to the gospel? Uh, And that's going to be important because the truth is when you and I go through difficult times, we begin to think that God's not really with us. But then, finally, and... uh, We close with this. He writes this so that they could rest in their salvation. There on your outline, I've put 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10, and we'll talk about it next week. Paul is talking about this church, 
and how they're enduring all these difficult times. And he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Remember, we, we showed up all bruised and bloody and beat up and how you turn to God from idols. And I want you to underline, turn to God from idols. And then underline, to serve a living and true God and to, I want you to underline, wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now as we wrap this up, um, very, very, very quickly, Paul writes to these people who are going through a very difficult time. And because they're going through a difficult time, they start to ask the same questions that you and I ask. Did, did we really get saved? Is God really pleased with this? Um, it, it just feels like God's left us. Paul writes back and he says, of course you're saved. Look at the evidence of your salvation. Paul says, you're not saved because of these things, but, but this is the evidence of what it means to be a believer. If you're a believer, this is the evidence that you have that, that you actually were converted. And I want you to write this down. Three evidences of conversion. They turned to God from. I want you to ask yourself, has there been that time where you turned to God, but you were turning from something else? Has there been that time? We, we talk a lot about conversion. And in our family right now, with uh, babies 11 and 12 on the way, we have this office. And uh, this office is going to be converted into uh, a nursery. I'll be studying in the lawn, I guess. But, but, but the idea is that the room will still be there. Still be there. But it's being converted from one thing into something else. Its use will change. Its function will change. It's still there, but it's going to be very different. When you become a believer, it's the turning from and now the turning to. There's a conversion. It's still you, but your purpose, your desires, affections, everything changes. Has that happened in your life? It's an evidence of salvation. When somebody says they've received Jesus as their, their Savior, but they never turn from anything, it makes you wonder, what really happened? What really happened? This is a church that's going through a very difficult time. Paul says you've turned to God from, and in their case, uh, idols. To actively, I put, uh, to serve a living and true God. So now it's evidence because that not only have they turned from something, to something, to God, but now they are serving a living God. Let me ask you a question. And you want to write that down. To serve a living God, actively serving a living God. Where in your life do you look at and you say, I know I've turned from something to him as evidence by now I am actively serving a living God. Coming to church once a week or once every couple of weeks is not evidence that you are serving a living God. Something, your passions have changed. You, you, you want to be involved in what he's involved in. And then finally, uh, you notice that there's the looking ahead to the blessed hope. Verse 10 in there, it says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from God. There's that excitement about Jesus is really coming back. Three evidences of salvation. And with that, we are out of time. And we will pick it up there next week. And I promise it will not be as much information. Did you get a Bible study today? So you're either excited or you're asleep, but either way.
Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and this Bible study. And Lord, as we, we wrap up this study, we know we've put a lot out there to give the picture of what took place. But, but um, I pray that even as we, we wrap this up and we, we head out today, Lord, if there, there are any here who are examining their lives who, who say, I really can't see that time where I've turned from to a living God. There, there's no area of my life where I'm serving the living God, and I'm certainly not looking forward to that blessed hope of him coming back. If that's any of us here today, we just look to you and say, Jesus, come into my life. I want that conversion. I want to be changed, and I want to go forward with you. I I want that desire to to follow you and to turn away from some things and to be excited about your, your return for us as a church. And the Bible says that if you invite him in, he certainly will. And he steps in and he never leaves. Father, keep us till we meet again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.